0: Okay, I am recording. I am as well. Hello, and welcome back to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined, as always, by my co-host, Julio. Julio, how are you doing? Uh, I was going to say it's kind of a cool Wednesday evening, but you said your things are a bit hot where you're at right now.
1: Yeah, I don't know if it's my, my side of Austin that got hotter, or just the, the fact that I, I turned the fan off in my little office, uh, and, and now I'm feeling it. It was hotter earlier. I don't know. Whatever the case, you know, quarantine life. What am I complaining about? Like I mentioned uh in our last episode, spending most of my time playing video games. So really, in a way, I'm 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 living the perfect life as my teenage <laughs> self wanted <laughs> so long ago.
0: I can definitely relate to that. But um I don't know, it could just be the heat from uh nineteen eighty eight Alec Baldwin and nineteen eighty eight Gina Davis that's just Whew. absolutely lit your your trousers asunder.
1: <laughs> it's entirely possible plus the heat just building off uh Tim Burton and Winona Ryder's rising stars as they were yes. breaking through into the mainstream.
0: Yes, uh unlike for Mr. Deeds we we will not be commenting on how hot Winona Ryder is in this movie, but Oh uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> we can save that to, I was dis- I was literally distracted at certain points just staring at Gina Davis in this movie. So, uh <laughs> Much to talk about. But we are here continuing on the summer of Winona. Hashtag Winona virus 2020. Uh, coming off the heels of the poorly received Mr. Deeds in 2003. We're going back in time because as with quarantine and as with the summer Winona, time is not linear. Uh, we're, we're being liberal here and bouncing around. And we landed in 1988, which was weird to me because I could have sworn from my childhood this movie came out in like 91 or 92 I remember it in that point in my life I only I wouldn't even I would have been one maybe when this movie came out. Uh no I would I would still I wasn't even one yet.
1: Okay so your memories can't be trusted that's what you're saying.
0: Yeah exactly. Um Beetlejuice I think on the upper tier of movies we've done with the most legendary of um I guess, legacies and uh, contributions to pop culture, it's got to be up there. I mean, obviously, we did the um, Avengers, and there's a couple other ones, but uh, Terminator, obviously. But this is uh, in the upper tier of, like, what people would consider the all-time cultural footprints, at least of uh, our lifetimes.
1: Now, when you think of Beetlejuice, do you think of it as a Tim Burton movie, a Michael Keaton movie, or a Winona Ryder movie?
0: Oh, Tim Burton, absolutely. Because it's, like, to me, uh, bleeding a little bit into real talk, but it's definitely, like... Burton at his most controlled, I think, uh, restrained is also a good word to describe it. I think it just it works out. It brings all the things that Tim Burton loves to do, all the cliches together in a, um, a very colorful vomit.
1: <laughs> so flattering.
0: <laughs> uh, but yeah, to your point that up until just a few years ago, I think they were still trying to get a sequel made. But even at its time, it was well received. I was trying to figure out while you were talking there how Universal comes into the fray because I know Beetlejuice is one of the characters that you can, you know, get your picture or uh, in a past life could get your picture taken with at um, uh, Universal Studios. But this, of course, was a Geffen Company movie and uh, distributed by Warner Brothers. I don't know. That's that's something for me to look into at another time, another day. But. Bringing back the Summer of Winona, uh, bringing it back to the forefront, Beetlejuice here, the second entry. Uh, We're going from the rotten side of things with Mr. Deeds to the fresh side, as this movie is uh, rated uh, or ranked, excuse me, uh, at 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. And if this is your first time listening to The Contrarians, uh, we uh, do appreciate your listen. If you're returning, we appreciate you as well. Give us a second while we run over our spiel for new listeners. Uh, We like to rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, is what we say. Uh, We find a movie on Rotten Tomatoes that's highly rated, sometimes known as Certified Fresh, and make a case for um, what might not be so good about it. On the other side of that coin, find a movie that's rotten, make a case for its positive merit. Uh, We typically stick with 90% above, but... um, as the Winona virus is fresh, we're making some exceptions here. And the uh, 84% Beetlejuice, uh, we're going to be making a case for maybe why it shouldn't be regarded as, um, you know, one of the more wildly heralded sci-fi, sci-fi comedy. Dark fantasy.
1: I still, my my main thesis going into the Summer of Winona is that I'm a bigger Winona writer fan than you are. And uh, so the question to me on... Each individual movie is just going to be how your perception of Winona Ryder uh, compares to mine more so than the perception of the movie overall. So that will be interesting, especially if we ever get to a movie where you like the Winona Ryder performance more than I do.
0: I mean, you picked an interesting movie for that because she's absolutely overshadowed and towered over by almost everyone else in this cast. So it'll be interesting (laughs) to see. How that uh, plays in.
1: Oh, man. I wonder if we're heading towards a real talk where, once again, I'm just... 90% of the time, I'm just defending Winona Ryder against your
0: your attacks. Uh, yeah, I wouldn't be worried about that. It's more going to be me talking about how incredible Catherine O'Hara is and how <laughs> Michael Keaton's the man.
1: Uh, all right. Well, uh, we, can, we can go into quotes before we head into Contrarian's Corner proper. Let's do it. Okay. So... We have two clips, two positive clips from uh, fellow podcasters and friends of the podcast. We're gonna go first with uh, Ben from Film Busters.
2: Hi guys. So this was an unusual one for me because I haven't seen Beetlejuice in over a decade. And when I did watch it in my like very late teens, early twenties, I really loved it. I loved its quirkiness. And um, watching it after a 10 year period, had me kind of worried going in and clearly my cat too because he's voicing his opinions one thing I will say is Tim Burton's golden days were very much this period the late 80s to like the mid maybe late 90s Edwards kind of time That was a special time for him. And clearly it was a special time for him because he also discovered Winona Ryder and put her in this film. Now, the film is fantastic. Michael Keaton blows me away considering he's only on screen for about 20% of the runtime. But Winona Ryder is incredible considering this is like one of her first performances. She plays that, not angsty, but that, you know, trope gothic teen that just wouldn't appear in films now because it would be too on the nose. Back then, I don't know that it was on the nose, so I think she, she worked great in that role. But what was going on with her hair? Sometimes it was like soaking wet drips down her forehead, and like in another scene, it's hugely puffed up. The hair was the star of the show, really, it was. Um, but Winona was great here, and I'm so glad that she sort of landed on the map, so to speak, with a film like this.
1: Uh, I don't know if uh, if Ben's cat was agreeing or disagreeing with him. Uh, I guess we'll we'll have to ask for follow-up on how the cat feels about the the next entries in the summer of Winona. (laughs) Um, And then we have another clip uh, from Mitch from Geek Elite Media.
3: Okay, I'll say this right now just to get it out there in the open and I can catch all the flack in the world. I do not like Tim Burton movies. However, Beetlejuice is one of the best. It's obviously the best. I was a new kid in my hometown, well now hometown, when I moved there when I was six and the kid across the street invited me to come over to his house. And every day after school for probably about six months, we watched the beginning of Beetlejuice. Why only the beginning? You say? Well, because we could only spend about an hour hanging out because after that it was time to go home. And then you have Renona Ryder is introduced to me as a young person. Her ability to act and her ability to make you laugh, make you contemplate this young girl's life of self-inflicted solitude. Definitely one of my favorite performances of hers. And I would go on to love her in many other productions after this. This is Mitch from the Geek Elite Media Podcast saying, always remember to geek out. I
1: wonder if Mitch knows how the movie ends. Has he has he gotten around it? <laughs> has he ever has finished he, it before? Yeah. <laughs> maybe he'll hate it. You know, since he seems to hate Tim Burton movies, maybe the th- last 30 minutes is where the movie would lose him.
0: Uh, uh, I'd forgotten how memorable the opening credits for this were and how much I missed the uh, Geffen um, signature, that little <laughs> sphere that turns into a G. That definitely, even though they only released maybe 20 movies for whatever reason, that definitely... Uh, just seeing that fills me with nostalgia. So Beetlejuice, uh, we are in a rural Connecticut town, and uh, you know, you think our main characters—we don't even meet our titular character for a fucking half hour, but we'll we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Our the first two characters, I, I guess I would say our leads, but that turns out not to be the case because Tim Burton just can't make up his mind. But the first people <laughs> we see in this are Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis, and as I mentioned a little little bit earlier, man. Uh, the steam was rising for both of them. It was just like, um, I'm trying to think, you know, I guess the modern equivalent would have been, uh, passengers with Chris Pratt and, uh, Jennifer Lawrence on screen at the same time, just too much hotness to handle and Alec Baldwin, man, just his boyish charm here. Yeah.
1: But they, they're trying to, to kind of tamp down the hotness, uh you know Baldwin is not playing the the usual Baldwin character he you know he's wearing glasses he's he's a little nerdy mm-hmm. and Gina Davis she's just the entire movie she's wearing this dress that's not revealing at all so it seems like a, a kind of a cheat to cast such attractive people and then work against that from from the very beginning it's almost like th- this entire movie is Tim Burton just trying to push his views and i guess one of his views is attractive people should not flaunt it they should just hide it as much as possible
0: and we did get in the opening credits michael keaton got the and credit and michael keaton is beetlejuice and i guess this was probably within his first dozen movies he made i feel that this was probably the one that made him uh a household name uh, I, I know he had made night shift before this, which is awesome and if you've never seen that movie, you should definitely seek it out. but this was I think safe to say his coming out party so much so that he was given the the very lauded and credit
1: this is a this is what got him Batman without Beetlejuice, you don't get Batman
0: <laughs> no, not at all uh also the score was composed by Danny Elfman. Do you know what iconic television <laughs> theme song that Danny Elfman composed that would uh, I guess uh, appeal to me.
1: Uh, the the Beetlejuice animated series?
0: <laughs> I, I can't confirm nor deny that one, but <laughs> he, uh, well, one, he did the uh, opening for Mask of the Phantasm and he wrote the theme song to The Simpsons. So two for two, and as far as my world goes.
1: I didn't know that. Uh, definitely not The Simpsons thing. And that just shows that how much artists can grow once they get. Out from under the shadow of people like Tim Burton, because Danny Elfman, I mean, basically, anytime he works with Tim Burton, he just does the same thing over and over. So it's good to know that he could stretch out, open but up. That he his got wings out and there and he
0: flexed his wings.
1: Yeah, he 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 can do other things other than you know the quirky goth Tim Burton style uh,
0: themes. So, our main two characters, Alec Baldwin, Gina Davis, Adam, and Barbara Maitland, uh, they just have this home they've worked so hard on in Connecticut, and it's their pride and joy, and it looks like a really nice little, just quiet, quaint town. They just run in downtown to pick up some stuff at the hardware store, just run a few errands, and wouldn't you know it, on their way back, they swerve going over a bridge to not hit a dog, and... Swerve right into the uh, I guess the creek, the river, the ravine, what have you on the side, and we quickly learn. Uh, I think the audience learns before they do that they died in this crash.
1: <laughs> Did it seem to you like the crash was not the kind of crash that would kill you? Because to me, it felt no, exhaust.
0: <laughs> yeah, it. I was kind of like, why don't they just climb out the side and you know. <laughs> I also have a hard time believing in a a town that small and idyllic that that creek isn't only, you know, six or seven feet deep. (laughs) I think they probably just were they Thelma and Louise did. They're just like, let's just keep going.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Baldwin was trying to uh, open the door and Gina Davis just reached and grabbed his hand and just shook her head. It's "It's not worth it.
0: (laughs) Um. So they return back home. Uh, they obviously things are askew uh, with them mentally and physically. Their reflections not showing. When they try to leave the house, they're transported to this, you know, dire wasteland where there's this mad, like, gigantic snake that's trying to eat them. And then, of course, I think the the dead giveaway is they stumble apro- across a book that says uh, "Handbook for the Recently Deceased."
1: Handbook for exposition. Uh- <laughs> That's that's crazy. That Tim Burton's idea of uh, the afterlife is that uh, you're trapped in your house and you're surrounded by bad green screen. Uh, this is I understand. It was the late '80s, but there have to be better movies, better looking special effects. Uh, those sand snakes that are that populate this the, the outside world, they just look like like Sesame Street puppets. If, yeah. if the whole idea is that this is supposed to be horrific, it it doesn't work. Because if I was Alec Baldwin or Jay Davis, I would just kind of shrug, maybe laugh a little, sing a song with them.
0: <laughs> yeah, I had my notes, didn't take long for Burton to Burton, because you know everything's <laughs> kind of just normal, but then all of a sudden, one wrong step, and they're in this really weird wasteland. Um, so much like the Summer Winona Times, not particularly linear, so we don't know how much time does or doesn't pass, but we are introduced to the new family that's moving into this house. Obviously, um, Adam and Barbara aren't entirely sure what's going on, but we, the audience, see Jeffrey Jones, uh, Catherine O'Hara, and Winona Ryder, a.k.a. the uh, A-team. The uh, 1992 men's Olympic basketball team of acting trios move into this house together. And if I understand correctly, Jeffrey Jones is... Uh, Charles, Lydia's dad, and then Delia is her stepmom.
1: Yes, but we don't find that out until maybe, I don't know, three quarters of the movie in. Uh, because, you know, they refer to her as mom. Uh, uh, Jeffrey Jones will say, like, hey, don't talk to your mom like that. And it's so to me, because this is a Burton movie and people don't act like real people, I was just like, oh, I guess that they th- this mother-daughter relationship is really twisted, uh, the way that they behave towards each other. But then much, much later, she says something. She corrects uh, either Gia Davis or, like, Baldwin. She's like, no, she's my stepmom, my, my mom. It's like, okay, you know, you had a whole book of uh, exposition about the afterlife. You can have dropped a little bit of exposition about your main characters, just so we understand this very important relationship.
0: Along with them for the ride, and I guess for the interior decorating, is uh, Otho, who is a friend of Delia, played by Glenn Shattux, And Did he-
1: you know that... Uh- that a cam from Modern Family was this old? Because I didn't realize that he had a career like back in the late 80s.
0: I was about to say he is a fashion plate and that would also apply to a cam from Modern Family. (laughs) Otho and Delia are dressed like they're in a different movie than everyone else. But I guess that's just Tim Burton being cute and quirky.
1: (laughs) I mean, Winona Ryder is dressed like no one else. And I don't really understand what the logic is behind her outfits. I just kept thinking it must be really hot.
0: Well, that's fitting of her character. She's just like a gothic girl on summer vacation, whereas like Catherine O'Hara and Glenn Shaddix are dressed like they're fucking uh, in Joel Schumacher, one of his Batman movies. It's it's off-putting to say the least. Uh, or distracting, I guess, would be a better word. But anyway, they're moving in. Captain O'Hara wants to turn this into this big, you know, designer, chic, GQ-type house. Uh, it was at this point that I got distracted and started doing research because they kept showing those static outside shots of the uh, the house. And it kept I kept thinking it was the fucking Psycho house, but it wasn't. Because it, it, like, looked like it. When's the last time you saw Psycho, first off, Julio?
1: Uh, it's been a while, but I, pr- I think I have a pretty vivid image in my mind of the house, at least from, you know, the outside when you see the hill.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, I just like the silhouette of the house, the profile of it, it, it was playing tricks on my mind.
1: Burton just got in your head. Yeah, Burton well, I was just, just about to say, he,
0: <laughs> he burrowed in there, now I have to say his name three times to let him out.
1: <laughs> just say, good movie, good movie, good movie, and you'll just come out of the Beetlejuice spell. Uh... So Jeffrey Jones, you know, he's kind of like a a, a Principal tricky... Rooney. <laughs> yes. <laughs> more more uh, infamously known though now as as just kind of like a, a maligned figure uh, along the the Kevin Spacey lines. He he was like me tooing before me too was a thing. So I I approach the Jeffrey Jones angle of of this uh, of my notes with caution as in like listen, we're not going to replace him with Christopher Plummer, but I'm just going to acknowledge that he's there and, and which really is kind of like what the movie does to him, you know, like what's the biggest quirk that Tim Burton gives him? It's just that that he likes birds. Uh, Catherine O'Hara and Winona Ryder are, they outquirk him by so much. He's, he's almost like a non-entity.
0: Yeah. Um, I, I'm sorry. I didn't really know of his legal woes. So I was just (laughs) reading about them right now as you were talking and I was like, good Lord.
1: I know. Uh, I I had to pause. Uh if we might slide a little bit into real talk. You know, the movie had started and I remember liking the dad character. And I was like, fuck, it's that guy. And then I looked it up and I was like, my God, I can't really enjoy this. Uh so it was it took a little bit of work to like disassociate. If you you know, we're not gonna get into it. If you listeners are curious, if you don't know the Jeffrey Jones saga, just look it up. It's gonna uh make you uh get into that exercise of separating art from the artist (laughs) once again.
0: Yeah, uh, the only reason I know his name is Principal Rooney and fucking if Harris Bueller is just the Rooney, the just yelling of it over and over again is just embedded into my brain. Regardless, uh, Charles Chuck, as Beetlejuice eventually calls him, it's not like he has too much of a story here. His story is that he's the dad. He likes living there because he likes the quietness and uh, also the ability to take advantage of the, the locals because uh, they don't understand how valuable their property is. The American dream, as it were, the, the American <laughs> tale. And he is pretty much just a pushover. He's definitely just kowtows to everything that Catherine O'Hara wants, and he doesn't particularly uh, pay mind to much of what his daughter says. On the other side of the coin, the original inhabitants of the home, uh, I guess technically speaking, their name may have still been on the deed at this point. Adam and Barbara are all watching this from afar, uh, afar being the attic where they have hunkered down, locked themselves in, not knowing really what to do. Uh, They eventually learn, though, that no one can see them. Uh, Basically, they're trying to figure out what to do, and they are like me when it comes to a book. They buy a book or they're given a book, and they want to read it, but they just (laughs) don't. They, they might pick it up and thumb through it at some point, but they have a really hard time committing. I blame mine on uh, serious ADD. I think theirs is probably more on the sense of uh, still accepting that they fucking died. But see, Alex, you, you
1: have the excuse of having a life. They have nothing else to do. They can't leave the house. They can't really do. They can't even clean. I mean, uh, Gina Davis is like dusting and she keeps complaining that there's too much dust and they can't get the vacuum cleaner because they can't leave the house to go to the garage. So, really, there's no excuse why they shouldn't have read that book cover to cover within the first week of being dead. And I'm, I'm hoping that you don't do this, but the other thing they do is they thumb through the book and then they complain when what they read doesn't make sense. It's
0: like, well, because <laughs> you have to read in order. They, bas- they, they watched Endgame first and then didn't understand why it didn't make sense.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what does she mean that... that- he took everything away <laughs> from her. Why doesn't he know this?
0: While they're trying to figure out what exactly they're going to do to you know, help their situation and potentially drive out the Dietzes, uh, we see our first appearance of Michael Keaton in this as, as these things happen with ghosts. A TV just turns on on its own and plays a commercial for Beetlejuice. Uh, just doesn't explain much of who he is, but it does say that he will perform uh, bio-exorcisms, and from this point forward, the movie becomes The Michael Keaton Show. You know, we uh, we have at it quite often about Judd Aptel, his crew, you know, the Jonah Hills, the Seth Rogans, the uh, Paul Rudds that just you know, incessantly improvise and aren't really wrangled in or controlled in any, any way. And that's basically all Michael Keaton does from this point forward in the movie. Anytime he's on screen. He was
1: a, he was a big dog. He was a, he was from, what was it? Night shift. Is that the name? Of the yeah. Movie?
0: He looked at Tim Burton and he said, I've worked with fucking Ron Howard. He's like, you don't scare me.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. First day on set, he just walked up with Gina Davis and kissed her. But,
0: but th- that, that yeah, that wasn't in the script. He just took that into his own hands. <laughs> but this is literally uh, Tim Burton getting too far ahead of himself and realizing at this point, oh, fuck, we didn't show a gun in the first act. We need to shoehorn in something <laughs> with Michael Keaton. And so that's our quick and brief introduction to Beetlejuice, because it's from here, if I'm remembering the sequential order correctly, that... Um, Adam and Barbara figure out how to go to the other side the basically purgatory to speak to their caseworker.
1: Yeah, they they they're like walking around not knowing what to do and then Alec Baldwin goes like, "Oh, you know what I read in that book that we should have read a long time ago? <laughs> uh you all you need to do is draw a, a door and then, you know, it opens into the into the afterlife offices or whatever." which is you know here's the thing the, the problem with this movie is i guess the problem with tim burton which is a lot of funny ideas quirky ideas I, imagination is not in short supply there's there's plenty of that and the visuals are creative uh, as far as, as ideas go a plus but the the execution bringing those ideas together in a world that makes sense that just doesn't happen, and that's a constant problem with with Burton's work, and it goes all the way back to, at the very least, this movie. I haven't seen a Pee-Wee's Big Adventure, so I don't know how that one holds up to, to the scrutiny of logic, but this one, Beetlejuice, once we go into the afterlife, which you would think would be where anything that doesn't make sense would start making sense. This is where we go behind the scenes, and somebody's going to explain to you what's happening, what's the logic behind any of this... Uh, That's not the case. You know, you just walk into more chaos and they they get some answers, but really nothing that to me makes sense in the big picture of, uh, you know, they have a caseworker that is not actively trying to work with them. And if the whole purpose of this office is to provide guidance to uh, to newly deceased uh, ghosts so that the status quo is maintained, right, because it's Apparently, it's important that they not let themselves uh, uh, be seen, and you know, because they don't want people to know that there's an afterlife. And uh, but it's also uh, they also have permission to try to scare people away. Uh, that seems like very contradictory uh, to me. Uh, there's there's no real guidance for them or for us, the audience, in all these scenes in the in the afterlife bureaucracy, so to speak.
0: Yeah, all we really learn is that Beetlejuice is bad. He's basically like a a member of the afterlife that went rogue and is basically just, you know, commissioning his own jobs now. And when he's unleashed, there's nothing that can, you know, subdue him. And basically he's chaos. That's what we learned from it all is just don't let Beetlejuice, don't even say his name. Don't let him into the world uh but he's chaos among
1: chaos because it's not like like they're doing much better i mean the 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 case played by the way by a joyce agent from friends mm. she mm. she doesn't really seem to have like any good ideas any any suggestions about what to do you know she's just kind of like oh you guys are really dumb you should just try harder to scare him away but don't call beetlejuice i mean it almost feels like she doesn't really want to help them but everything else that that Burton has set up in this world makes me believe that she would want to help them because it's in her own, uh, interest. Right. I mean, if that, if that's her job and she wants her job to be easier. So yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me.
0: No. Yeah. We just leave with more questions than we came in. She just basically tells him, well, if you want to get rid of him, just scare him away. You're ghosts after all. My favorite thing though, <laughs> leading into it is like they're dead, but they still quibble like married folk <laughs> when he draws that door In chalk, Gina Davis is like, you fucking idiot. You think that's actually going to (laughs) work? And then when it does, he looks at her like, you know, kind of the, I told you to buy the heavy duty trash bags type thing. (laughs) So all the while, Winona Ryder's on the case. I mean, it is her summer after all. Uh, She believes she sees some people in the attic and, uh, you know believes there's something going on. She tries to get in at one point and they kind of blockade the door and knock the key out when she tries to enter. So she knows something's going on. Meanwhile, Adam and Barbara I mean, take- it's never
1: really explained. it's never really explained why she can see them, right? No. Just, just because, because Tim Burton's quirky.
0: It also has never explained how Jeffrey Jones landed Catherine O'Hara at that point in time. Because <laughs> it doesn't seem like he's particularly smart. Um,
1: but I think it's more like she landed him, like she pounced. Uh, (laughs) I don't know if, uh, Winona's actual mom passed away or left. She probably left Jeffrey Jones and then, uh, he had money. So Catherine O'Hara just went up to him and it's like, Hey, let's get married. I like your daughter.
0: She thought he can finance my art projects. This will work perfectly. Yes. He's an idiot and he won't talk back. Uh, Adam and Barbara take the advice a bit too literally and try to scare, um, the Dietz is as ghost. They just find some sheets, cut the eye holes out, and just try to do the old boo. Woo. Charles does not take them seriously. I think he thinks it's Lydia, actually, so he just dismisses them. <laughs> Delia's passed out in her bed. Uh, she actually fell asleep watching pro wrestling, furthering my love for Catherine <laughs> O'Hara. Uh,
1: and then we know the writer thinks it's her... Her parents. She thinks it's Jeffrey Jones and Catherine O'Hara having some sort of kinky role playing session. Because first she's here in the moaning and she's rolling her eyes and she's like, "I'm just a kid." And then she comes out with her camera, her Polaroid camera, and takes pictures of them and chastises them for uh, for not keeping it in the bedroom. And then and then you know she realizes that there's no feet there that they actually there's no feet on the when she looks at the pictures. Uh, But anyway, the the whole thing is. This little sequence is so telling of the entire dynamic of that family. is more economical and more interesting than anything else that Tim Burton does in the movie to tell us how wacky they are. Mm-hmm. So, if he could just get out of his own way, I think that this movie would be a lot more fun and a lot more subtle.
0: Yeah, uh, I kept having to remind myself of the time frame because you know if this would have been released in two thousand and eight or two thousand and eighteen the hipster level just skyrocketed with the Polaroid camera. And I kept having to remind myself like, <laughs> no, that was actually something that was prevalent at the time. And, uh, but she learns quickly like, oh shit, these are the people I've been seeing. Cause the picture, you know, all she sees is floating sheets and, uh, it's, it's pretty awesome just cause she's like, who are you guys? And Alec Baldwin just almost in like a Jack, uh, Jack Donaghy moments like, wait, you're not scared of us. and gina davis is she's so flummoxed and annoyed that she was even in the sheet to begin with it's uh it definitely (laughs) almost more so than anything fucking michael keaton does this feels kind of just like a more genuine ad-lib scene it was actually one of the ones i enjoyed more in the movie well it it feels because they're not trying so hard that's the thing
1: uh the problem with keaton is that and thank god he's not in more of the movie because then it would just be excruciating but uh Probably with Keaton is that Burton just let him loose, and and he fell back on that tried and true stereotype of the comedian gone wild. I mean, Exhibit A: Jim Carrey. Right? He's just just hamming it up making uh, all sorts of voices it's like you're not robin williams so don't even try it's don't try to like play five different characters uh in in one minute cut it off with like the voices and the asides and the and the meta humor can you imagine if beetlejuice had been played with more restraint then you know maybe it wouldn't be as memorable but it also would be a better movie because it would be it, it wouldn't be just like this one character suddenly uh just taking over the movie. There'll be more balance.
0: Yeah. My next note actually says Michael Keaton in the house. As we see the desperation grow in Adam and Barbara that they go and visit Beetlejuice, who's now somehow landed in the little model city that Adam had been building and they go and meet him. They dig him up from his grave. He comes out on wires, the whole act. And it, again, it, this becomes the Michael Keaton show from this point forward. He's, off to the races and riffing, talking about God knows what, and then of course just <laughs> uh, kisses and fondles Gina Davis
1: at, at every chance he gets. And Alec Baldwin, he does not react strongly enough. I think he's just like, stop it, and then he just keeps coming back. It's like a like when a dog's humping your leg, and you just you know you just kind of like hoping that he'll he'll get tired and, and walk away. It's like I would think. That Baldwin would be a little more territorial. It's it's Alec Baldwin. He's an alpha male. We know him as that.
0: Do you know or have you known who Michael Keaton based his performance as Beetlejuice off of? I hope it's Tim Burton. It is not. According to folklore, Michael Keaton based his portrayal of Beetlejuice off of Bill Moseley in The Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 which if you or anyone listening has not seen that, I recommend going and watching it because you will say, Oh, I can never unsee this because, uh, (laughs) chop top is Bill Mosley's character's name in Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. There are many similarities and obviously Keaton brought it to a different level with his portrayal of Beetlejuice, but just an interesting tidbit because they're both very eccentric and have their long rants that clearly aren't scripted and, I think I read ninety percent of Keaton's dialogue is ad libbed, and I have no difficulty believing that at all. What happens when you say "chopped
1: up" three times?
0: Oh, I don't know. Leatherface shows up, <laughs> very sneaky. <laughs> but Bill Mosley inspired Michael Keaton to show up here as Beetlejuice, rant and rave, and not in really any specific, well laid out terms. I, I don't. Does he ever explain what he'll actually do? I know that it's just like no. Hey, I, 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 he's too busy. Yeah.
1: He's too busy riffing. <laughs> uh, much like the the offices of the afterlife, there's not much sense in what Michael Keaton does as Beetlejuice because uh, he never explains what his plan is to to get rid of the family. He doesn't explain uh, what they would owe him really, like what the, what the transaction is gonna be like. Uh, he's just he's just interested in being funny, and the the thing is. As, as a business model is terrible because everything he does it just uh, pushes him away
0: yeah and again like you said there there's really no clear description of what he does and it's clear why no one wants to deal with him I mean, just listen to him talk and he's very handsy and uh, a perv and yeah I don't I don't blame anybody for saying, just keep that fucker in the ground where he belongs.
1: (laughs) Yeah. uh, This is where uh, Gina Davis, when she's finally had enough, she decides that uh, the way to get home is to say, home, 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 you know, three times, and then it works. Yes. Just just so, how, what? (laughs) How does that make sense?
0: That was not explained to us, but apparently it does work. To be fair, Gina Davis could tell me to do anything three times, and I would but uh <laughs> that's true <laughs> especially 1988 Gina Davis
1: my uh, my biggest pet peeve though with the, with the Beetlejuice character is just that his name is not spelled the way that it's spelled in the title of the movie
0: Beetlejuice I know the it's ice? a little
1: thing yeah it just it annoys me so much uh, I, I actually went looking into it to see if there were like any deleted scenes that that explained why and uh no, apparently it's just that the producers or Burton or somebody, they thought that it looked better on the title, uh, that, you know, the title looked better spelled as Beetlejuice as opposed to Betel-juice or whatever, you know, that which is the name of a star. Anyway, it's just confusing. Why do you call your your movie Beetlejuice when the character is not really named Beetlejuice? You know, it's it, it just the things that, it's, it's little things like that that just drive your audience crazy. <laughs> it's,
0: uh... We'll have to find one of these for every one of the Winona Ryder movies. Like, with Mr. Deeds, it was um, the constant references to To Kill a Mockingbird. And in this one, it's why the fuck isn't Beetlejuice spelled the same way? God, can you imagine, like, had it been a time where you and I were working at a movie theater together, if they did spell it the how it is, like, on the tombstone, all the way different customers would pronounce it and shit? Uh
1: Just give me one for the... For the well, what would they say? Would they say, "Give me one for the Michael Keaton movie"? Uh, I guess, right? Because he was the biggest name. Uh, maybe we have some some people coming f- to the Gina Davis movie. Yeah, um, the Ghost movie. The Ghost movie. Yeah, movie with that weird girl that likes to dress in black. <laughs> uh, I was I was looking at my notes and I just realized that they do explain why when not a writer uh, can see them, sort of. Which is, oh, she uh, read the book. We're not a writer, yeah, exactly. Yeah. She read the book and she. She figured out that uh, it's something like most people decide to ignore the strange and unusual. And then she has the, the Winona Ryder line of the movie, which is like she looks at them and she's like, "Hi myself, I'm strange and unusual.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: That's what I realized that Winona Ryder was playing Tim Burton, the female version.
0: That's going to be the clip they're going to play at the In Memoriam at the Oscars. Like she'll get, oh. she'll be one of the people that actually gets a clip while fucking... <laughs> I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Some YouTuber sings a cover of a fucking Oasis song. <laughs> anyway, so Beetlejuice, they realize he is bad news bears and really should only resort to him if absolutely necessary. Uh, so they form their own plan of how they're gonna spook this family and get everyone the fuck out of there. And I, would you say this is the most iconic scene of the movie, the Dayo dinner scene?
1: It's, yes, I want to say. Yeah, yeah, I think that if you're talking about set pieces, this is probably the most memorable, Uh, probably right next to just Beetlejuice unleashed at the very end.
0: Yeah, so this is, uh, I remember from this scene most vividly from my childhood when I watched it, and anyone who's seen the movie knows, they're all having dinner and Catherine O'Hara starts singing Deo, at least miming it, and the rest of the... <laughs> The table's like, what the hell is she doing? And everyone gets pulled into this synchronized dance sequence. And it's just great. Um I think... It doesn't make any sense, though. No, and How? I think that's... Well, that's it's a Tim Burton movie, dude. Yeah, that's You're right. You're talking about a guy who, in his Batman movie, had a scene... He spent like 30 seconds setting up this one shot where Batman flew his fucking plane and then just went straight <laughs> up into the air so he could turn... You know, 90 degrees, just so it would be the reflection of the moonlight behind it. So it looked like the bat signal, like above the bat signal. That That's what you're dealing with here. and
1: Yeah, he had he had a, a smaller budget here, so he couldn't make Catherine O'Hara fly all the way up to the moon and strike a pose. Instead, he just had her sing. Uh, uh, is it, that's the name of the song, right, Dale?
0: Yeah, if it's not, then I am.
1: Isn't it like the banana song or I something?
0: I am lost, if that's not the case. Let's see here. I'll look this up while uh, while moving on, though.
1: Um. Oh, but wait. So what I
0: was going to say is,
1: just in case somebody doesn't understand what I mean when I say it doesn't make sense, uh, it doesn't make sense that this is something that Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin are suddenly able to do. They've been pretty incompetent so far, and yet they figure out how to, one, control Everybody at the table, you know, like they control control their actions, they control their their mouth movements. Uh, they make them dance. They also, I guess, you know, made it so that everybody could listen to the song. And then the big finale of this musical number is these these really creepy hands come out of the plates and grab everybody's faces and throw them back so they all end up on the on the floor. It's like, why did they even need Beetlejuice? If they can do this sort of shit, then they could. They're unstoppable. You know, even if they're like uh, uh, good-natured, and and even if the family thinks that this is funny at first, you know, after a week of that stuff, you, you're out of there. They don't really need Beetlejuice. I don't understand why they made them suddenly so powerful.
0: So it is Deo parentheses the banana su- the banana boat song, excuse me. So all right, close enough. Yeah, and you are right. It is ridiculous. It's absurd, preposterous, uh, and even so much so that I think I was reading that. Tim Burton himself was like, what the fuck is this? And then when he like pushed it out for <laughs> test audiences, he's like, people aren't going to think this is entertaining, but of course, it as things work out that way, it became possibly the most memorable scene in the movie.
1: It's so weird, too, because everybody's reacting differently, right? Uh, it, different uh, uh, levels, I guess, of being into the song. Because Jeffrey Jones always looks like he's being mind-controlled, or rather, uh, body-controlled, mm-hmm. right? His, his face... Is always surprised that his body is moving along and all that stuff. Uh, Catherine O'Hara, she looks, her eyes look surprised, but she sort of seems to be kind of in control of of, of the of the song, and then. Uh, uh, Cam from Modern Family, he is a hundred percent into it. He is like he closes eyes and he's just uh, uh he grabs a, a a salad bowl or something and he's using it as a uh, as a musical instrument. So there's not even consistency on how this uh, this affects everybody around the table. You know, it's probably the most famous set piece in the movie and also the one that makes the least amount of sense.
0: Yes, uh, I think to answer your question about Beetlejuice, though this is exactly the point. Uh, Adam and Barbara are just such good natured people they think this is going to scare someone giving them like a good old time to sing a musical ditty together and you know uh, they do have the shrimp cocktail that turns into the hand and pulls their face down but obviously this backfires in the sense that you know uh, just like I said they all had this rambunctious righteous time singing this song together and so they're like holy shit there's ghosts here you know we can turn this into a place of you know the supernatural or the um, tourist attraction type thing like you know kind of Capitalizing on uh, what we we're talking about earlier with um, Jeffrey Jones, Charles commenting the American on dream. The, the the American Dream, the naivety of man, the politeness of just rural folk, he pitches it to um, pop culture, music, movie, television icon Robert Goulet, who's I believe his boss. <laughs> that uh, there is just such a Tim Burton casting, just in the sense of like. Robert Goulet has not made too many movies. The ones he did make, uh, he would typically be himself or be a lounge singer of some sort. But in this, he's just like this character that's really draws no attention to itself, but it's fucking Robert Goulet. I I just think that's endlessly fascinating and one of the Tim Burton quirks that does work for me, not just some, you know, Johnny Depp bullshit, but just this kind of funny, uh, almost, you know, <laughs> stunt casting.
1: But then again, kind of a missed opportunity to not put him in the musical number, you know, because you didn't have to have him be a singer. Oh because everybody suddenly becomes a singer there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. If if he wasn't there, you wouldn't need to have him lip sync anything. He'd just croon those tunes out. <laughs> So my next note here just says the juice is loose, and this is where the Maitlands basically learn that they're not going to be able to do this dirty work, so they're going to have to rely on someone else to do it for them. So they go and summon Beetlejuice, who just like beats the shit out of uh, Jeffrey Jones, (laughs) traps uh, Catherine O'Hare against the wall, and knocks... um, Glenn Shaddock's Otho down the stairwell. He like turns into this giant snake and you know You know, they tried. They tried really hard for 1988, but this is one of those things, you know, (laughs) does not age well. You know, we're not talking Star Wars where this still looks breathtaking. We're just talking about, you know, Tim Burton in a giant latex suit maneuvering the jaws of this (laughs) snake.
1: It's just, it's a sock puppet. It's just, it's a a lot of socks tied together and it (laughs) ends on something that is supposed to look like Michael Keaton's face. Um, But Alex, I wish it made that much sense. It doesn't really, because it's not even that they call him. Uh, Nobody. The only person that actually summons Beetlejuice in this movie is Winona Ryder later. He decides on his own to do this. I don't know if you remember, they're like frustrated and Michael Keaton is like watching from, you know, his hideout and he's like, well, I guess now it's time to turn up the juice. And then on his own he just goes and starts wreaking havoc. So, again, why, what's the point of having rules of, of him having to be summoned when he can just do whatever he wants.
0: That's a good point. Uh, I, I don't have the answer. We can get Burton on the line, though. We can get him in on the <laughs> Skype call, ask him. But yeah, he he does do, he proves why everyone, or not everyone, but at least their caseworker warned him against him because he's obviously just this terrifying madman uh, who really can't be stopped. So then how do, but they get him back to like mini size and throw him back on the, the model town
1: does it is it uh do they say his name three times is that what happens yeah right gina davis comes out and she like beetle juices him uh thrice which again doesn't make sense because at the end of the movie they get rid of him by saying his name three times but technically they had already gotten rid of him at this point in the movie when they said his name three times you know like how many how does that work like i I can almost understand that they called him the first time, right? They they dug him out, and now he's out there, and and he's not gonna, you know, he's gonna be out there until they put him back. And how do you put him back by saying his name three times? Well, okay, they just did that. So why is the movie not over? <laughs> or at least why isn't Michael Keaton out of the movie for good? Uh, why is he still hanging out uh, around uh, Alec Baldwin's uh, model homes for for the rest of the movie? Well, I was about to yeah, say, yeah, it doesn't make
0: sense. He has a, I don't know why he bothers because he's got it made in the shade, just living in that model town because he can just like. Create strip clubs and hot women with his mind. Like, I don't know why he would need to leave or go anywhere. I mean, maybe food.
1: Actually, uh, Joey's agent reveals that she's the one that put the the strip club there. Do you remember? Because they, you're right. Yeah, she, think, she she they, needed
0: something to keep him distracted. You're right.
1: Yeah, but again, that means that she has the power to technically, she has the power to just solve this problem for them. But instead, she just keeps kind of reprimanding them for not being better at this, and then not really doing anything else to help them.
0: I still stand by what I said, though. He's the only man in a little town there full of strippers. I mean, there's no reason for him to leave.
1: And, you know, when he gets hungry, he can always catch a fly.
0: Yeah, I mean, he's not a man of a... He he doesn't have a refined palate. I don't think he's really... (laughs) uh, When a bear's hungry, he'll eat type mentality uh winona Ryder goes full-on emo this was like the most i remembered her from this movie uh being a young lad is when she's all you know in emotional disarray and she's got the veil over her face and she's essentially writing her suicide note so dark and twisted do you know off top of your head how old she was at this time
1: uh yes i looked it up because she says in the movie that she's 16 remember like uh I think it's when Beetlejuice proposes to her, tells her that she they should get married. And I was like, is she 16? Because I don't know how old she was in Heathers, and this was after Heathers. And yeah, I looked it up, and they... I, I mean, she has to have be been 16 or 17 while they were shooting. Yeah. I mean, she looks it. She looks really, really young. She also looks like Winona Ryder. <laughs> you know, some people change a lot as they get older. Uh, I think she still looks the same. And the same she looked in
0: 1988. So she she's sad. She's talking in, you know, veiled terms about uh, basically wanting to be dead and um, pretty dark for a PG movie. And this was one of the famous movies up there with Big and I'm trying to remember what else that got away with saying fuck in a PG movie. When did they say fuck? What is uh, what Keaton says, like, nice fucking set. And then, like, grabs his balls and then <laughs> he goes, honk, honk. <laughs> I don't know how I missed that. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it's really but
1: but the entire movie has this tinge of, uh, you know, I wouldn't go as far as saying that it's pro suicide, but it's kind of pro death because the the whole idea behind the you writer character I guess is that she is she's depressed and that she she wants to die. She doesn't want to be alone anymore, and the presence of Gina Davis and and Alec Baldwin as fairly well-adjusted ghosts, kind of confirms to her that, oh, well, you know, the afterlife is better than dealing with Catherine O'Hara's bullshit. (laughs) And the movie never really does much to prove her wrong. You know, it's all things considered, Alec Baldwin and Gia Davis are not doing that badly. Even if they hadn't uh, unleashed Beetlejuice, they'd be okay. They look great. They don't have to go to work. and. You know the movie paints Catherine O'Hara as this monster, but really it's not that bad. And they don't have to deal with her because they're ghosts. Whenever they want, they can just kind of go up into the attic, and not deal with it. Uh, and they and they like uh, when a writer. So overall, is not such a bad deal. I mean, out of all the many many representations of the afterlife in pop culture, Beetlejuice's representation of the afterlife what happens when you die is not that bad. So I can totally see why Winona Ryder would be like, oh, this is cool. And like I said, I think that a more responsible movie would have worked to prove her wrong, would have worked to, to show us how much uh, Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis are missing out by not being alive anymore. But Tim Burton's not interested in that, of course. He's just interested in you know being quirky. So almost, I guess, by accident, the movie basically agrees with Winona Ryder. She doesn't kill herself in the end, but her best friends are ghosts <laughs> by the end of the movie. So... I guess they kind of like split the difference there.
0: Her friends are ghosts, and she goes looking for them. She goes up to the attic, and she finds no one. Because at this point, they've gone back to their caseworker, and essentially they're just like, we're going to do what we can to get rid of them. This is where we get the... Very famous, uh, like prosthetic heads of them. You know, Gina Davis lifts her mouth wide open and her eyes come out by her tongue. And uh, Alec Baldwin. She's still hot. Yeah. I I mean, wood, as the kids say. And uh, (laughs) Alec Baldwin just stretches his face out. It's Tim Burton just flexing, like, look at how much money they gave me for this shit. So uh, Lydia is unable to find her friends, but she does find uh, a mini Beetlejuice who's, <laughs> he's like sunbathing in the, the glow of the neon light at the strip club. And essentially he's like, hey, they're gone. Uh, he tries to basically sell, you know, hey, I can give you, I, what does he try to sell her? I know he explains like.
1: she. So she says that she wants to be dead. And he's like, "What?" And then he's like, "All right, well, I guess I can help you with that, but first you need to help me by yes getting because I've here. got
0: friends to meet." And he just starts riffing about God knows what. <laughs>
1: yes, uh, and then somehow that leads to them being engaged, right? I don't know. I don't remember. It, it, there might not be any connective tissue there, but basically, by the end of this, he conversation, mentions that
0: you'll need to marry me, but it's just kind of like a throwaway line, like you know the <laughs> he, the fine print that no one reads. He
1: was riffing. Yeah. He was still riffing and Burton was like, well, fuck, now I guess this is a plot point. We need to go forward with this.
0: And so he's like, you need to say my name three times. And she's like, what is it? Like, well, I can't say it. And so then it turns into this just sequence of charades that's just preposterous. And uh, It
1: proves that Winona Ryder doesn't know how to play charades, or she's the worst charades player in the
0: world. This is true. And then like the she gets Beetle easily, and then he shows a big <laughs> carton of orange juice being pulled in poured in excuse me into a glass and she's like Beetle breakfast, Beetle Orange <laughs> And I watched it with my sister and she's like, How would juice not be the first thing you say?
1: <laughs> beetle Tropicana.
0: <laughs> but eventually she gets it. But then refuses to say it three times because she figures out who he is.
1: Right. She. <laughs> this is how bad the prosthetics work uh, was in that previous scene where he was a giant snake. It took her this long to recognize that it was the same face.
0: <laughs> it's like fucking um, if in the beginning of Endgame, if Thor saw Thanos and like wasn't sure until he got like right up close <laughs> to him and someone's like, hey, Thanos, your beer's ready. And he's like, you. <laughs> so she says no she leaves him there uh, she goes right before anything bad happens between them um, Adam and Barbara return I'm like hey we're going to let you and your family stay here you know we want to be we can be friends to you we can help you all we're just going to stay in the attic and do our own thing type of thing
1: this major, major development happened off screen right the the conversation where they decided that uh, they're not going to try to scare them away yeah <laughs> because they leave they leave the office of uh, of their caseworker like we said transformed into these monsters they're going to going to go to town and then Gina Davis kind of says like you know I like that little girl and uh, Alec Baldwin looks at her like uh, well it's too late now uh, i think he actually says it's too late now and then cut to them saying hey you know what don't worry about it you guys can stay you would think that that moment is the biggest piece of character and plot development in the entire movie. That's that's what their arc is, right? they They didn't want these people living in their house. and now, because they see and when our writer, the child that they never had, well, they have decided to compromise and sacrifice off screen, cutting room floor somewhere else, <laughs> not in this movie, not in this cut. <laughs> what a
0: shame it's not to be so we think everything's going to be fine and end up here. but um Charles has already gotten Robert Goulet and his wife, you know, to come out. He thinks there's money to be made with turning this into, um, transforming it into like a tourist hotspot. So Otho had gotten his hands on the handbook of the recently deceased and conducts essentially, you know, a summoning or a seance is what he thinks, but, uh, as he's doing. So he just kind of reads it off. It's basically like the, the child's play manuscript, but he doesn't actually know what it means. And, um, it brings Barbara and Adam to the kitchen table, but it's obviously something that it's, I think, basically an exorcism because it's starting to decay them away uh, and just kind of deteriorate them and wiping them off. And so in a moment of weakness, not knowing what the hell else to do, Lydia runs back up and summons Beetlejuice to come in and save the day.
1: This is this is what I meant earlier. Uh, like I would say this is the second most memorable moment in the movie just because... You could argue this is what you came to the movie for, uh, or at least if you watched the movie before, this is the thing that you remember, that at some point, after all the cock-teasing, finally, Beetlejuice is unleashed and he can just do whatever. It would have been more powerful if you hadn't seen him do anything before now, right? If you hadn't had the sequence where uh, he turned into a serpent and he uh, he beat up uh, Otto and Jeffrey Jones. Uh, but we've already seen him do some of that crazy stuff, so it's not as powerful uh, but still, he gets to he gets to do some magic tricks to get rid of a uh, at the very least Robert Goulet and uh, and his wife.
0: Yeah, he just <laughs> thanks for coming, Goulet. He just uh, disposes of them basically like <laughs> the strongman game at a carnival, and uh, then that's the last we see of Otho as well. And at this point, he transforms into his uh, wedding tuxedo, which that's the action figure I the one I kept out when I went through all my action figures recently. And I had one of Beetlejuice in the wedding tuxedo. So I've got that on my horror shelf right now, horror and sci-fi.
1: Oh, that's awesome.
0: And then Lydia's in a big red dress and this fucking Pixar looking character comes out to be the minister of the ceremony. (laughs) Um, All the while though, the, the exorcism had ceased on Adam and Barbara. So they're starting to recover and you know, they're putting themselves back together uh, and they try to do what they can with you know saying Beetlejuice three times, but he keeps stopping them at every turn. I remember very vividly watching as a kid the part where he throws the zipper on the mouth of Gina Davis and then throws the basically the steel plate over her mouth that's bolted down. He's just doing everything he can to get out of this. Meanwhile, her parents but, are but, doing. But he nothing. really
1: isn't though. He's shown us that he has almost godlike powers, so he's going pretty easy on them. Uh, if I was really interested in, in making sure that they do not say my name three times until this wedding has been performed, then I would just you know get rid of him the way that he got rid of uh, of, uh Robert Goulet. But he kind of like softballs it. He uh, he te- I mean, with Baldwin, he teleports Baldwin to the model house, and then uh, and then with, with uh Gina Davis, you know, he takes his time, he does the zipper, he does the, the steel plate. Uh, you would think that with all his his power and his desire to not be called away, he would have, uh, I don't know, come up with something a little more permanent.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, he's obviously a maniac. I think he doesn't even realize his own strength. I, I, in that sense, if he just, like, <laughs> vaporized, if he just, like, Dr. Manhattaned Gina Davis, <laughs> he would find no theater in it. He has to become, like, a, a clown or something first before he does it. And right here, he's just trying to get married. But uh, eventually... He banishes Gina Davis outside of the house. She's able to, I don't know, somehow quickly become friends with one of these giant sand snakes and ride it back into the house and it eats Beetlejuice. Uh, Meanwhile, Jeffrey Jones and Catherine O'Hara have done nothing of help.
1: (laughs) Well, he he, so he trapped them, right? That Beetlejuice uses powers to he trapped. Catherine O'Hara in one of her sculptures and then Jeffrey Jones, I think just, he just tied him to a chair again, a, a lot of stuff that's more effective than what he was doing with, uh, with Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis. It's crazy. If, if nothing else, the one person that doesn't do enough is uh, Winona Writer, because you would think that she would fight a little harder to get out of this situation of this uh, underage marriage. She's about to uh, be engaged on. Uh, but she all she does is basically stand there while Beetlejuice just manipulates everything into happening.
0: Yeah, and even then, like Delia and Charles could kind of see the trend of what's going on and maybe try to say Beetlejuice once or twice, but I don't, I
3: don't fucking know.
1: <laughs> that's true. <laughs> i hadn't even thought about that—that that he, they still have their their full. Well, you know what happened? They didn't know who was Beetlejuice or Beetle Goose, and that's <laughs> you know they didn't. They had read two different uh, versions of the script. Beetle so hadn't figured it out yet. Beetlegeist.
0: So, the unholy Beetle breakfast, be- be- Beetle orange. Uh, so, the unholy wedding is ceased, and Lydia is saved. Beetlejuice is out of the picture. Uh, we go forward uh, probably a few months or so. The Dietzes and the Maitlands are living in living in harmony uh, in their house, and Barbara and Adam are friends with Lydia, and they basically help her now with her schoolwork and help her with studying and whatnot. And she comes home and explains that she, you know, she got an A on this test, that they helped her study for math test, and she basically, at this point, I guess she's rewarded by uh, them using their ghost powers to kind of help her, you know, or allow her to do, you know, kind of supernatural things, because she starts levitating and singing Harry uh, Belafonte's Jump in Line while all of the trinkets and appliances around the house basically provide the backup music. It's a, a fitting ending to this farcical tale
1: it's uh yet another instance of how the fuck did they do that as far as the uh, you know alec baldwin and gina davis's powers i guess they come and go uh, depending on what the story requires why didn't they do something this creative when they were fighting beetlejuice (laughs) they could have just made when our writer float away from the wedding or something i don't know because that's i mean baldwin is he doesn't even break a sweat here and he's making a lot of things happen and apparently he does it all the time because uh, Catherine O'Hare and Jeffrey Jones are on the on the second floor, and they you know they kind of hear the music, and they're like, oh, I guess we know a writer got an A again. So once more, the movie ends with inconsistencies, and uh, I guess it's fitting. There's also uh, the for no reason the. Football players from a previous scene, like some minor characters, like throwaway jokes, show up to dance with Winona Ryder at the end. Uh,
0: just, <laughs> I did, I said like out loud, "What are the football players doing there?" And like they're not even properly on center. Like one of them kind of overlaps Winona Ryder, and my it, it <laughs> yes. drove my OCD into a tailspin.
1: Uh, yeah, that is just so weird. That's like uh they they had a, a one of those uh, audience greetings, and somebody they realized that the football players were a big hit. I'm like, oh, we need to bring them back at the end. <laughs>
0: yeah. uh, and then, of course, the closing, which again, Michael Keaton just riffing, and probably one of the more memorable uh, visuals of this movie. He's in the waiting room for, uh, as he is dead now, and he's, I guess, waiting to speak to his caseworker. And he attempts to cut in front of, uh, I guess, a witch doctor that's next to him. And uh, in retaliation, he shrinks his head and his head's getting smaller and smaller his voice getting higher and higher as a little kid obviously this was fucking hilarious as an adult the the real comedy of the gag is that um you know the pick a number wait in line yes 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 Uh because like yeah Beetlejuices is is like you know four million five hundred and then the guy next to him has the number four it's So it's not, I don't know. I could be completely off base. To me, that doesn't really seem like a Tim Burton style joke. I just, I found it to be really funny.
1: So what happens in the sequel, you know, in the uh, Beetlejuice goes to how wide does he have like the the tiny head or does the movie open with with the procedure in which he enlarges his head again? Uh, Because I don't know that I could take a whole movie, even if it's only 90 minutes of Beetlejuice with that tiny head and that voice. It would just get on my nerves really quickly.
0: You have to say his name six times to summon <laughs> him in the sequel. Anyway, that was B- Bietelgeis.
1: <laughs> goose. Yeah, let's, let's go to real talk and find out uh, how we felt about this for real.
2: Are you the guys hiding out in the attic? We're
1: ghosts.
2: What do you look like under there? Aren't you scared? I'm not scared of sheets. Are you gross under there? Are you Night of the Living Dead under there? Like all bloody veins and pus?
1: Night of the what?
2: Living Dead, it's a movie. You know, if I had seen a ghost at your age, I would have been scared out of my wits. You're not gross. Why are you wearing sheets? We're practicing.
4: You can see us without the sheets.
2: Of course I can see you.
4: Well, how is it that you see us and nobody else can?
2: Well, I read through that handbook for the recently deceased. It says, Live people ignore the strange and unusual. I myself am strange and unusual. You look like a regular girl to me.
0: All right, I am recording. All right, real talk for Beetlejuice episode number two in the summer of Winona, hashtag Winona Virus Twenty Twenty. Just a delightful movie. I, I honestly think this might be my favorite Tim Burton movie. Oh God. Uh, We'll discuss. Uh, keeping in mind that I already explained about my hair, as President Bush would say, um, I have not seen Big Fish, so that that is the the big outlier that I have not seen as far as his most acclaimed movies. But this is very good, and obviously we'll talk to the all the parts of it later. But um, like I said at the beginning of Contrarian's Corner, I do feel this is the most Controlled Burton, and it really benefits from it.
1: That that ninety minute runtime really did it for you.
0: Yeah, I mean, always. Um, Academy Award winning movie at the same
1: category as Suicide Squad.
0: Yes, the sixty first Academy Awards. Let's see what was up against Beetle uh, Beetlejuice that year. <laughs> it was a short category that year. It was Coming to America, Scrooged, and Beetlejuice were the three movies nominated.
1: So it was really Michael Keaton versus Eddie Murphy versus Bill Murray.
0: It was a, That was a hell of a triple threat. And it was, on <laughs> a grander sense, it was Tim Burton versus John Landis. Uh, <laughs> I would definitely take Tim Burton in that fight. Anyway, Beetlejuice, the movie we're here to discuss today, again, is 84% on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, and it's also, I wasn't just blowing smoke at the introduction of Contrarian's Corner, This is definitely on the higher tier of um, all time uh, favorites and very, you know, uh, evergreen cultural footprint movies that we've covered here on the podcast, which is interesting because it was only one movie. It's kind of rare you see uh, things that have spawned as much, you know, uh, video games, toys, cartoons, uh, fucking Broadway musical. Uh, constant references on television and film for the decades that followed. And it was the only one. Typically, uh, you know, you're used to seeing a franchise that instills that sort of uh, notoriety. But one and only. I mean, they, they were trying. It just
1: hasn't happened.
0: From what I read, uh, Tim Burton was all in. I think Michael Keaton and uh, Winona were all in. But uh, Tim Burton just, like, I guess, lost interest and wanted to make Batman. That's essentially what happened. <laughs>
1: I mean, you could still do it. Don't invite uh, Jeffrey Jones back, but then Oof. everybody else is still around. It, it's The official name was Beetlejuice Goes to Hawaii, right? Yes. That's insane. <laughs> oh, yeah. I would love to see how Tim Burton would shoot a Hawaiian movie.
0: There's, there's no telling. So being that it's 84%, that does mean there were some critics that uh, there was a 16% that were verbose and outspoken. What what were they all saying?
1: Yeah, the, the green splotches. Uh, I have a couple, led by Gene Siskel from the Chicago Tribune, uh, who said, An overly ambitious special effects comedy, obviously influenced by the success of Ghostbusters. Okay. How's that a bad thing?
0: You know, it's funny you mention that. But I feel my attachment to this movie is very similar to what a lot of people our age have to Ghostbusters. I think that... Uh, so it's funny that's the first quote you bring up. Um, the way I've always heard people talk about Ghostbusters from their childhood is really how I feel about this movie. You know, it wasn't quite on par with Star Wars or uh, you know uh, X Men or Terminator or something like that, but it was this really cool thing that I was into, uh, and I really like watched the movie a lot as a kid. And um, I'm not gonna say related to the characters, but played with the toys and really got swept away in the fantasy of it all. Uh, and yeah, not to—that's not a disparaging commentary on Ghostbusters at all. I just think this was the movie I identified with in a way a lot of people did with uh, Ghostbusters.
1: That's funny. Uh, I never even would have thought of of that comparison, right? I, the the idea that there might be some people that are like, "Well, it's Team Beetlejuice or Team Ghostbusters," but uh, I probably land on Team Beetlejuice as much as I like Ghostbusters. Uh, this seems this is a little more up my alley. Uh, and I probably saw them both about the same time. I just remember renting them both on VHS. Except that with Beetlejuice, I had no idea what I was getting into. Uh, I, I just went off the cover art, I think.
0: <laughs> uh, well, the the title Ghostbusters kind of helps to set the table.
1: Yeah. Well, but the time that I watched Ghostbusters, I uh, there was you know the cartoon was out, so I, I didn't even know that there was a Beetlejuice cartoon until. Last night, or a couple nights ago, when I was watching the movie, the, the Blu-ray, and you know, I told you that it includes three episodes of the of the cartoon series. So, with with Ghostbusters, at least I kind of had an idea of, you know, oh, Slimer, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, have one more. Uh, Felix Vasquez Jr. from Cinema Craze says the character of Beetlejuice is hazy because the writers can never decide if he's a villain or an anti-hero. You agree with that? I think he's I think he's a villain. I think he's a bad guy pretty clearly.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I didn't really realize there was much room for debate. I, <laughs> to, I mean, he's um he's captivating. He's you know in a not so dark sense. He's the Joker, he's Heath Ledger from The Dark Knight in the sense of you want him on screen all the time because he's just so good at what he's doing, but yeah, his what he's doing is not good.
1: Uh, at the end, though, when I remember this when I was a kid, like, I remember rooting for him uh, when he first comes out and starts attacking, you know, the uh, Otto and, and Robert Goulet. Um, that was, and I guess even now as an adult watching it, I was like, fuck yeah, you know, just take care of them. Even though I know that it's it's not good because he, you know, then he's going to. Try to get another writer to marry him. So, do you find yourself cheering him on when he's just being reprehensible at the end?
0: It's kind of like the enemy of my enemy type thing. Uh, yeah, it's a fascinating thing of like the, all those people in the afterlife. Uh, you know, he kind of helps to clear clear the stage, but then the reason he does it, his motives are not pure, and that like it's for not a greater good, more of a greater evil. And so, but yeah, like when he shows up, of course you're like, yeah. Take that, Robert Goulet. Uh, <laughs> but I remember as a kid, and especially now, like wanting so badly for Alec Baldwin and Gina Davis to do away with him, say his name three times. <laughs> and I, I remember, and again through this viewing, that's, I'm kind of just wanting them to win. So it's, you know, that's a, a classic pro wrestling trope. A bad guy does something to help a good guy out. But his motives for doing it still aren't good, so you're kind of conflicted as a viewer. It's, it's a, it's a la- it's a very simple yet layered approach that I don't think is utilized nearly enough in movies anymore.
1: Uh, where is the Beetlejuice inspired pro wrestler? Would it be the Undertaker? But you need somebody that's a little uh, livelier.
0: There was the Juicer, played by Art Barr in WCW. Fuck, I can't remember if he was directly. Supposed to be Beetlejuice. I'm looking up right now. Uh, yeah, his face paint and whatnot. The, yeah, he they originally called him Beetlejuice, but of course that was trademarked, and so he just became <laughs> the juicer. Our bar was a hell of a wrestler, too, so it's uh, it's fitting that they found some dumb gimmick for him. And then, of course, there was Beetlejuice on the Howard Stern show. Yeah, to answer your question, there was a wrestler based off Beetlejuice, as there was any big movie happening of the late 70s to about early 90s they would always try to base a wrestler off of there or a show title because there was wrestling star wars in the (laughs) early 80s and uh Uh,
1: where's wrestling infinity war where's a uh, tithanos pro wrestler
0: see the problem with that is now is the promoters don't care about that really uh it's more of the wrestlers are just such fucking giant nerds now like um <laughs> uh you follow me on Twitter so I'm sure you've heard the name Seth Rollins before uh yes he his WrestleMania gear last year was like Thanos inspired cuz his finishing move is a stomp he does a one foot stomp so he had one boot that was like bigger and looked like the infinity gauntlet and <laughs> Of course, I didn't get it then, and I've seen that movie now, and now I'm just like, God, what a fucking nerd! But uh, <laughs> here and over there, Beetlejuice. Move along to that next quote you had. But yeah, we have one
1: more clip. This is this is not a surprise, I guess, and I think he acknowledges it. Uh, Tofer from We Watch a Thing. Uh, turns out he's not a fan of Beetlejuice.
4: Hey fellas, Tofer from We Watched a Thing here, um, and it may not surprise you to hear that uh, my take on Beetlejuice is not a positive one. A film that just begs the question, why is it called Beetlejuice? You take him out of the film, and it's basically the same movie minus the worst acting of Michael Keaton's career. It should be called, couple that weren't interesting in life continue to be uninteresting in death. Ryder's whole stone teenager vibe is actually one of the more credible aspects of the film. I assume she was drawing from a lived experience with that aspect of the role. She may well be the MVP of the film, with the exception of that last scene where she's floating and something, I can't recall it that well, because the film is actually entirely unmemorable. Even Catherine O'Hara can't save it, and that is saying something. So, sounds
1: like Tofer is a fan of Catherine O'Hara, uh, like you, but he was not impressed by her performance uh, in the movie. Uh, I sense that you disagree.
0: Yes, I don't agree with <laughs> his uh, his thoughts on that. For one, Michael Keaton, I think, considers this his best performance, his favorite performance. And, All right, let's uh, let's
1: start with Keaton because <laughs> that's 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 so big. I do you agree? Is is this your favorite Keaton?
0: Mm, I don't know. It's hard to say. It's really enjoyable, but I, I don't. I. I know like I can just hear people already scoffing at this me saying this. I think his performance in the other guys is like <laughs> possibly it just because it's like everything that makes him a good actor but also just an unbelievably gifted comedic actor all comes together there. But here, I mean, we we joke a lot of about that whole style of riffing and that lino-rama style of comedy, but here it just kind of, it works. Because I also imagine it's not like there were takes of his that weren't funny or bad. I believe that like everything he did was probably fucking hilarious.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, this is what, what, what that style looks like when it works. Uh, because even though he's riffing, it doesn't feel like the movie drags at all. It's It's super tight you know he's he's riffing but he's going a mile a minute so uh you know he's in and out and he just did like you know a hundred jokes uh in that span uh i mean really it i mentioned i kind of like name dropped him in Contreras corner but it really made me think of uh of robin williams in that sense just at how fast he was going and how like all yeah. over the place in a good way he was uh yeah, I'd I'd forgotten how good he was in it. I mean, obviously, he I remember him, but I just watching it the other night, it was so good, just so full of energy. And I'll give Topher this: uh, the it made me laugh that the idea that uh, an interesting couple in life continues to be an interesting in death. <laughs> I mean, there's there is very little to to those characters. Uh, I enjoy them. Uh, I think partly because. Uh, You know they're good actors, so they can they can do a lot with very little. Uh, That
0: makes the story much more relatable, though, that they are so unremarkable that all they just want to do is just live in their house and they don't want to be bothered. Like, I think that makes the story more relatable if they were like bank robbers or something and were afraid someone was going to find their stash. (laughs) I think that's part of the movie.
1: Yeah, uh, I think that the the one thing that I honed in on um, on this rewatch. It, it, as sort of a missed opportunity, and I, I brought it up in the next corner, it's just the idea that they... We don't really get a big moment where they make the turn and decide that they're going to just let, you know, this new family stay because they like Winona Ryder so much. Uh, I think that there's, there's a good setup for it. That we're just missing maybe, like, that one scene where they have a, a sort of a, a heartfelt conversation about, you know, what they're losing and what they're gaining by this family staying because i i like it it's it's very understated you know just the idea that they were they were planning to have kids they were trying to have kids and they hadn't been able to so far and they were going to try again and then they died and then this girl shows up and they connect with her and so ultimately that's what ends up convincing them that they can they can make this work out but me saying this I think that it is is building it up more than it is in the movie. And the movie is just kind of like you can kind of see it, but the movie never makes it a a priority for you to to follow this this through line. And I think that maybe it would those characters they wouldn't be so. I mean, they can still be unremarkable, but somehow have more of a of a an emotional impact by the end. So that you know, when the movie's over, it's not just about You know, Michael Keaton eclipsing everybody, but also, oh, you know, there was this sweet story about this couple that ends up having a kid sort of by the end. But then again, I think it's obvious that Tim Burton was interested in just making it funny and maybe that would just slow it down too much.
0: Yeah. And like you mentioned, it it doesn't the fact isn't really um, overly present because Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin are both so effortlessly good. Uh, one thing I read was Alec Baldwin doesn't like the movie and he thinks he's really bad in it. And I guess if you just think that in the sense that he's not the the star of the movie, I he. <laughs> I don't think anyone's bad in this movie.
1: Yeah, no, it, it the cast is top-notch. Uh I you know, it's just funny because it's just so different from uh, our last experience. You know what like the problem with Mr. Dietz, or one of the problems with Mr. Dietz, was that everybody seemed to be uh on different wavelengths as far as the, what they were doing on screen. And, but here it's just, everybody's making the same movie and everybody's working really well off each other. So yeah, I I don't know. I don't know what he's talking about. I I think it's great. I, you know, I don't know about Michael Keaton, but I think this might be my favorite, uh, Alec Baldwin performance. Um, you know, 30 Rock notwithstanding, if we're talking just okay. about movies. All right. <laughs> yeah. I, was like,
0: <laughs> I was, like, picking my nails while, like, uh, you were saying that, and then I just, like, kind of stopped and slowly looked up, and I was, like, waiting for you to put an asterisk on that.
1: Yeah. Well, we, just because he is so... Uh, just It's so different from the usual uh, alpha male characters that he plays in, in most movies, right? Here, he's kind of just kind of a nerdy guy that... that I mean, he has a backbone, but he's overall just a really nice guy. And uh, it's, uh, I don't know, I just found it refreshing. its I don't think he's stretching any acting muscles, but uh, because you're talking about Alec Baldwin, he is playing against type in a way. So that's that's kind of cool. Yeah.
0: yeah, And I think he's it, it, funny. Yeah, yeah. This movie is definitely the sum of its parts. And uh, Baldwin, uh, Davis, obviously Catherine O'Hara, can't say enough good things about her in this movie, nor in life. Um, <laughs> the novelty of Robert Goulet is a lot of fun. Uh, Glenn Shaddix is Otho. Just a couple things I found that I found interesting as far as trivia goes, uh, because the production budget was so small, um, the effects were at least according to legend folklore scripture, the effects were intentionally supposed to look bad, uh, to give it more <laughs> of a B movie type feel. Tim Burton originally wanted Sammy Davis Jr., a favorite star of him uh, of his childhood, to play the role of Beetlejuice, but studio executives did not like that idea at all. And I can agree with that. That would have been a very strange movie.
1: <laughs> what do you have against Sammy Davis Jr.? I mean, Absolutely it would have been nothing, but it,
0: <laughs> like him trying to act with like Winona Ryder. Now dig this, you know, come on.
1: <laughs> uh, it would have been a very different Beetlejuice uh, That would have been great
0: <laughs> One for the the history books One for the record books In terms of uh, what could have been I did not realize Netflix had been around this long But uh, Beetlejuice was the first DVD Sent out on Netflix in
3: 1998
1: uh, Yeah, I started using Netflix When I moved to the States I think like that first year so that would have been 2002. Uh, so just a few years later.
0: Yep. Yeah. That, Netflix that makes sense. first launched in April of 1998. It was an online video store shipping DVDs in uh, red envelopes. Because <clears throat> yeah, DVDs started in 97. I want to say. Anyway, I just thought so that the was first
1: customer they got was like uh,
0: hey, Beetlejuice. We know the writer. She's just like, I want to watch this movie. And then my other, there, obviously there's a lot around this movie, a lot of history, trivia, and whatnot, but just for the sake of time and uh, the most interesting points, uh, Kirstie Alley was the first choice to play Barbara, but the producers of Cheers would not let her out of her contract to take the role. Sigourney Weaver, Linda Blair, Goldie Hawn, Laura Dern, and Linda Hamilton uh, were also considered for the role. I really feel, you know, obviously the movie was made with Gina Davis, but like all those women listed are all very talented in their own right. But I think Gina Davis brings that quiet, calming sense that's absolutely necessary for that character that those others don't. I don't know if it would have worked as well.
1: Yeah. Maybe it's because I, at least, you know, when you're talking about somebody like Sigourney Weaver or uh, Linda Hamilton, uh, my mind instantly goes to their action movies. So in this character... It's just so she has so much warmth to her that I don't see it working. But of course, you know we're talking after the fact that we've seen the movie with Gina Davis, so that's that's just how it works for us. Um, you know, I I mean I would like to see Sigourney Weaver uh, bossing Alec Baldwin around. <laughs> <Just> <laughs> would have been slightly different dynamic, and, and I kind of get the feeling that she wouldn't put up with uh, Beetlejuice's shit for a second. She would just kick no. Michael Keaton's ass,
0: and then. uh Heather Langenkamp of Contrarians fame was considered for the role of Lydia after Tim Burton saw her in A Nightmare on Elm Street. Langenkamp, however, turned down the role because she didn't want to play a goth girl.
1: Uh, I think we're all better off for it. Heather Langenkamp, <laughs> us the audience, win on a writer. I just, you know, let's let's get to it. Let's get to win on a writer because I i think she's great i think she is uh uh really good in this movie as especially when you put it in the context of her not really being winona writer at the time you know this is like her second or third movie and uh kind of like her first movie that was a hit so th- to me i was thinking about it uh last couple of weeks since we since we recorded the Mr. Deeds episode and just looking at the timeline and everything and she really is kind of the, the let's say like the Jennifer Lawrence of her time, like it's that kind of career, I mean we don't know where Jennifer Lawrence's career is going to go but you know the idea is like this young actress that takes the world by storm and makes a lot of interesting projects and they some of them are really big critical hits, some of them aren't and some of them are big box office successes and some of them aren't but for a solid decade or so it's like she's in the conversation and prominently right and everybody knows who we know writer is and everybody knows that the movie might be shit but she's good in it or yeah. uh you know i i think i would imagine casting agents are always like okay well how about we know a writer and uh and this is kind of like where it starts i guess or where, where it breaks through to the mainstream uh, as mainstream as a tim burton movie would be back then uh so when you think about all that, 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 you know, this is just the very beginning of her career and she's doing really well, not just because she's, I think she's doing more than holding her own against much more experienced actors. I mean, she shares the screen with everybody, with Keaton, with Davis, with Baldwin, with uh, O'Hara, uh, with Jones. But she's also just good. I mean, she's a 16 year old that it's, you know, behaving like like an actress. Like, uh, uh you know, she's... uh. Her delivery of the lines, and uh, it would be so easy to turn the the character of Lydia into just this really uh, two dimensional stereotype, you know, like the goth girl that's kind of obsessed with death and whatever. But I think that she manages to transcend that. Uh, do you feel the same way, or were you because you mentioned that you felt that she was kind of overshadowed by everybody else?
0: I think she is, but I think that's just because you're dealing with a murderer's row here, Uh, but she does hold her own. I mean, the scene of her writing the suicide note, I always thought was kind of hokey and I still kind of do, but it, it, she's not hokey. I think the, the dialogue of the scene is, but I don't think that's, that's not any failing of hers. I remember from being a youth and as an adult, also, I've always loved the scene. I guess it's not technically the ending, but the last scene with her Where she sings "Jump on the Line," because Uh the like joy of that scene is so infectious, and like uh, her joy is infectious. You can like read on her face that she was really having fun. I guess being on those wires or whatever they were doing, (laughs) and it's it's a very authentic scene. Which um, one constant criticism I for me personally that I've always had with Tim Burton is just all of his shit is just overly manufactured and doesn't feel organic. And this scene, the closing scene with Winona Ryder in this, and it's because of her performance also. And just the way she, and she's fucking lip syncing for Christ's sake. It's not like, you know, she's, (laughs) uh, you know, it's not a, you can't handle the truth type acting. She just, her body language and her facial expressions and just the energy she exudes. One of my favorite scenes in a Tim Burton movie ever, and um it's because of her. And like when I think of this movie, I obviously, think of Michael Keaton, but I always think of—I've always thought of her in that closing sequence. I think she's tremendous. I think, um honestly, who gets lost in the fray here is um Catherine O'Hara and Jeffrey Jones. I know we kind of want to walk the tightrope as far as you know, speaking positively about Jeffrey Jones, but. <laughs> Uh, they're two, the Charles and Delia characters, uh, are both great. They're both played tremendously. Catherine O'Hara is fucking awesome. Um, but you have Winona Ryder, like we've talked about, obviously the three leads, Michael Keaton, Baldwin and Davis. Uh, and then, like I said, the stunt casting of Robert Goulet and then even Glenn Shaddix kind of steals a lot of the energy in the scenes he's in just cause he's so weird And like has this very odd charisma about him and so much attention just drawn to his, uh, his haircut and his facial features and the way he dresses and whatnot. So if anyone, if I were to say anyone was uh, overshadowed in this movie, it would definitely be Catherine O'Hara and Jeffrey Jones. Uh, But you know, I, there's not a bad acting performance in this movie. It's uh, I use that expression, some of its parts a lot on this podcast. And I think this movie succeeds because of its parts. It's, a filtered, focused, concentrated Tim Burton effort that is the players he has for it are like this ridiculous lineup, and it's not like, um you know, this isn't a Wes Anderson movie where we have you know forty people just casted for no reason. The cast is like what, like ten people? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. It's I mean, and, and it's mostly in that house. Everything that happens, so it's you know, he kept it uh pretty well contained. I. Yeah, I, I can see how uh, O'Hara and Jones are kind of mostly background. I mean, they're they're moving the narrative forward a lot, but I think that a lot of the of the the big jokes obviously go to to Beetlejuice, and a lot of uh, of just the plot goes to uh, Gina Davis and and Alec Baldwin. So they're not as big. I mean, I mostly think when I think of Catherine O'Hara, I think of uh, uh, supporting roles anyway right like she her killing it and and supporting roles and and so this was no different this is just kind of like what I'm used to you know with her and same thing when I think of Gina Davis and Alec Baldwin I think of them as leads so it's it's kind of like it all goes along the lines of what I was expecting and then what I had forgotten was how little Beetlejuice is in the movie I mean you told me that you've forgotten that it was so short and what I had forgotten was that Beetlejuice takes forever to show up and that then he goes away again for a while i was surprised i mean that they don't really call him out until we're like maybe halfway through the movie uh i didn't mind it because i was having so much fun but it's it's crazy that it's structured in a way where what is what you would think is the biggest attraction you just get it for like a little bit you know and then all the way at the end i i remember just renting this not knowing what i was getting into and then being fascinated finding it all really, really funny, like I thought Keaton was was really funny and, you know, like I said, rooting for him at the end. And that final scene where uh where we're known as dancing, just kind of uh not disturbing me, but really it, it was it just felt weird. I like now as an adult I can see the joy that you were talking about. But to me, I think it was the, the football players in the background that just kind of threw me off. Um now, you know, it I, I mean that was definitely the first Tim Burton movie I ever watched, but now knowing Tim Burton and his sensibilities, everything makes more sense, and that feels like you said like a very uh, joyous variation of his quirks. Uh, but I think that at the time, as a kid, it, it just it just threw me off. It was like it's such a weird happy ending, you know, because Alec Baldwin and Joe Davis are still dead, <laughs> you know, yeah, and, uh, and and this girl, I think that even as 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 a kid. Maybe I couldn't articulate it, but I felt that there was something a little uh, bittersweet about this girl who was very unhappy at the beginning of the movie uh, finding happiness uh, with two people that are no longer alive. You know, there's something that's not like you're exactly your typical happy ending. So I don't know. It, it's it all makes it very distinctive, which is it's one of the things I appreciate the most about this movie.
0: Yeah. Yeah, like I said it's it's all these things that Burton usually tries to put into his movies these themes and you know tropes is like we like to say and but not even despite itself just because of the like brilliance through all of it it just kind of works out in the end and like he said uh this happy couple that you're introduced to in the beginning like they die fucking 2 minutes into the movie but still when the movie ends you're filled with like this sense of happiness and uh everything's gonna be okay and of course you know if you want to really get into it you, you can always think about the the aspect of that and maybe that is the the um the afterlife like there's people you can still help on the other side of this and it's kind of of course as an adult that's more detailed stuff you take away from it like i remember rewatching source code not too long ago and like the whole idea of that movie just completely fucking me up because like <laughs> i hadn't <laughs> watched it in forever and i'm like oh god what if that can really happen when you die so I think it, it's it's Burton firing on all cylinders, and I think um, everything about about it helps it and makes it, and all those casting things we talked about. It's a movie that you know we've talked about this so often with movies we've done. Uh, yeah, you know if they did if this person did play that character, maybe that could have helped or it wouldn't have made a difference or would have made the movie better. I feel like anyone taken out of their role in this movie would have just. It's like a, a Jenga tower. In a lot of ways, it just kind of would have fallen apart. Um, Johnny Depp and as uh, Beetlejuice. No, no. no. <laughs> I like Johnny Depp, but uh, as an actor, and but no. Um, and just like the the scenery, and it's uh, it does a great job of that whole idea of purgatory or you know the, the afterlife. How the sets for that are just so drastically different than what we see in the "quote unquote" real world, and um, you know, it's little things like that that you just think, "Yeah, duh." But the fact that we've seen so many movies that don't go that extra mile to make uh, things that are cartoony, cartoony, it just kind of adds to why I enjoy this movie so much. Um, did you, uh,
1: did you raise an eyebrow when uh, the receptionist, uh, Miss Argentina? Uh, kind of like shows them her wrists <laughs> and i don't remember what the context is but basically it's a reveal that shows that i guess she committed suicide by cutting her,
0: her wrists open yeah my sister goes jesus uh-huh. um <laughs>
1: i'd forgotten about
0: that well it was because she's like um talking about the afterlife and purgatory and she's like And if I had known then what I know now, I wouldn't have had my accident. And then she lifts her wrists up and then kind of like everyone in the waiting room kind of has like a um, a muffled chuckle. And yeah, it's, (laughs) you know, you got to remind you, uh, you know, whose game you're playing, that, that being... Tim Burton, just kind of got to bring things down a little bit. Uh, the gentleman that put together the screenplay for this movie, Michael McDowell and uh, Warren uh, Sakarin, I do apologize for mispronouncing. Looks like the, both of them are no longer with us, both died at fairly young ages. Um, but I, I was trying to see, it didn't look like they had done too much else that I was overly familiar with. Uh, McDowell, I believe was, um, he wrote like horror paperbacks. He was more of like a literary writer. Huh. So I guess that would make sense. Uh at least the um, horror influence is coming in and then uh Sacrin Sa- he looks like he I'm reading this right now, he was the driving force behind the distribution of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, a film in which he took a personal financial stake. So he is a great man.
1: <laughs> so both horror horror buffs. Yes. Do you think they still hang out with Tim Burton? Like uh, they they haunt his house, and uh, when Tim Burton comes back from a particularly good day of shooting, they just make him float (laughs) and dance to Harry Belafonte.
0: Open their mouths really wide and have their eyeballs pop out by their tongue, and you know, (laughs) and um, yeah, and then Warren wrote. uh, He was on the screenplay for the Batman, uh, the Tim Burton Batman that came out the following year. And then because I never got to my original stuff, uh, it was released on March 30th of 1988. As I had mentioned, I could have sworn it was more of an early 90s movie. Uh, budget of $15 million with an original box office return of a uh, little bit over $74 million. I think it's safe to say in the 32 years since this movie's been out, it's probably made a little bit more than $75 million.
1: I would imagine. I mean, and that's not even factoring in uh, the Broadway musical. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, so... I'm not going to put this in you know, my all-time top five, top ten. I will say I took a lot away from it. This is my first time watching it in a long time. Maybe my first time watching it cover to cover as an adult. Um, it's great. It's wonderful. Uh, I'm going to be buying the Blu-ray for it. I rented it for this watch. Um, like I said, probably my favorite Burton movie. It's either this or his first Batman conceding that I need to see Big Fish. But... It's one of those movies, I think, that I don't really have an issue with all the people that do consider it, you know, their favorite movie. Um, I'm assuming, Julio, you're not adding it to the, the Oliveira top 20 or anything like that, but I think it's safe to say we both came away from this really enjoying it. You know, Winona Ryder, no Winona Ryder, just the movie itself is really good.
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I love Big Fish, so I think that that is pre-securance number one Tim Burton spot for me. Uh, but this is, I guess... I also hadn't seen it in maybe two decades. And uh, I remember, like I said, loving it when I was a kid, like watching that VHS over and over. And, you know, my takeaway is like, Oh, it's as great now as it was when I was a kid. Even if I'm experiencing certain things differently, it, it still works. Uh, I can still appreciate everything that it does. Right. And the few very minor things that it kind of, I think maybe could have done better. Don't bother me at all. So it's, it's just so good. Uh, and then Winona Side too, like, I remember, you know, I don't know if you've ever had that experience with Winona non-writer or other actors, probably. You know, when you... That moment when you realize a certain actor or actress is the same actor or actress of another movie that you love, but you'd never, like, realize that. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't remember which movie it was with, but I just remember the moment of realizing, oh, Winona Ryder is the little girl from Beetlejuice, and suddenly gaining so much more respect for her. (laughs) Uh, So that's also something that I kind of carry. Probably my biggest Beetlejuice memory is that, you know, uh, next to how much of an impression uh, Michael Keaton uh, made, I guess Winona also did because later on, years later, I would kind of make that connection and, and uh, take it as a, as a real positive. So to me, I mean, I just kind of, like you said, I can't imagine this movie done any other way like differently you know with different cast or different director or uh, a different story I honestly I'd rather they not do a sequel even if they could get everybody together because I just like it the way it is I just want it to end here um, mm-hmm. I am curious about the musical because you know they already made it and I'm assuming it follows the same story as, as the movie uh, I think I'm going to hunt down the the cast recording and listen to it and see See how that goes. But I'm going to say four and a half stars.
0: Yeah, I, I give it an A. I, w- I was about to kind of put a period on your review there with just like, we're not breaking ground with this. I think that's kind of why we've approached this from a few different angles. It's it's not news that we're going to say Beetlejuice is a good movie. I think a lot of people feel that way. And uh, this is one of those episodes where... You know, fortunately, we do have the gimmick of the summer of Winona because got to find another way to approach it. Because God, I'm sure you could find millions of podcasts on the internet that break down this movie. But yeah, four and a half stars from Julio and a from myself. If in the off chance that you haven't seen it, definitely recommend a, a rewatch. The um, so the action figure I was telling you about, where he's in his wedding tux, uh-huh. uh It is the tux from the movie, and like I, I think I mentioned this off air, maybe on one of our last episodes, you could tell. The Keaton figure, or the Beetlejuice figure, Michael Keaton was fine with his likeness because it kind of looks like him. But <laughs> uh, the I had an Adam figure, and it looks nothing like Alec Baldwin, so I'm sure he was just like, no. And I have an Otho that doesn't look a whole lot like Glenn Shattuck's. Whatever the case, the, um, <laughs> the Beetlejuice figure I have, he's in his wedding tux, and his head pops off. And the head under his head is a, a shrunken version of Beetlejuice's head, so because you know the he's wearing his wedding tux at the end when his head gets shrunk.
1: Right.
0: Yeah. Uh, so,
1: have you seen the like the animation, like the, the character design from uh, the, the animated series?
0: Yeah, I mean, I watched that cartoon as a kid. It's been since then that I've seen anything about it, but it's even more cartoony, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, but but you can see. You know, Beetlejuice himself. I mean, you can kind of see it as uh, see him as a cartoonish oh, yeah. extrapolation of of Keaton. But uh, if you look up Lydia, <laughs> she looks nothing like when on a writer or you know, it's like goth girl, okay. And and but then they went into a completely different direction.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, it's Beetlejuice, but then like Casper in a wig. <laughs> Man, there were almost 100 episodes of that cartoon. God what? bless.
4: <laughs> yeah. It's
1: crazy. I told you, I, I only got three on that Blu ray. And uh, I don't know. I might at some point talk myself into watching them just for, for completion's sake. I was pretty bummed yeah. they didn't include any sort of commentary or behind the scenes or anything. Uh, but I guess it has the movie, and the menus are pretty cool.
0: Tremendous. So that was Beetlejuice. On the horizon next for the summer of Winona. Hashtag Winona Virus 2020. Ooh, Alien Resurrection.
1: Yeah, our first bonus episode as we uh, as we close May. Uh, alien Resurrection. So going back to that idea of uh, us kind of being part of this uh, Winona Ryder uh, autobiographical or biographical film, right? That opens with Mr. Deeds, where she's like at this crossroads in her career. It's like things that are about to get bad. Uh, And then we jump back to the golden days, the beginning of her career where she has her first commercial success with Beetlejuice, her first collaboration with Tim Burton. Things are building up to something good. And now we're going to throw ourselves into this weird foray into sci-fi. Sci-fi with another writer. uh, In a controversial entry, as far as Rotten Tomatoes goes, it's a 55%. Now, I pose a question to you, Alex? Do you want to do it as a gray area episode, or do you want to do it as, uh, I think at 55 it's rotten?
0: Yeah, I mean, technically it would be. Um, I don't know. Let's leave that decision. Let me do a little bit of research on it first.
1: Okay. I was going to say, it's our show, so we can do whatever we want. (laughs) It's a bonus episode, so all bets are off. We can can talk about it as if it was a a rotten movie, and we're going to pretend that it's good, or we can do it as a gray area. We do have uh, an actual gray area coming out uh, later in the summer with Reality Bites. So, I mean, maybe we just want to save the the gray area gimmick for Hey, that I one. can't
0: believe I hadn't asked this so far. What's the motivation between Girl Interrupted not being on the lineup?
1: Uh, I think it was just the, the Run Tomatoes score. It was because it's like what, 70s, right?
0: Uh, 60s, I think, something like that.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it was like, so. For the bonus episodes, you know, I picked like the ones that wouldn't match. So, so you know, you have Alien Resurrection at 55, you have Bram Stoker's Dracula at 71, and uh, The Crucible at 68. So I think it's just that those three movies seem more interesting than Girl Interrupted. Have you seen it?
0: Uh, no, that was kind of the thing as I, I was. I know uh, uh, Angelina Jolie won an Oscar for it.
1: Yeah, it's. It's kind of a you know, it's the Angelina Jolie show. Mm. It's it's supposed to be a Winona Ryder vehicle, but uh, it turned out to be the, the Angelina Jolie show. So, it's it, it almost feels more like an Angelina Jolie movie than a Winona movie. It's probably for the uh, better,
0: because I, I do remember reading, like, I think Brittany Murphy has a fairly upsetting exit in that movie. And, yeah, life portraying art, art portraying life type thing.
1: Uh, Whoopi Goldberg is in it she's uh oh. one of the doctors or maybe one of the nurses, I don't know. It's it's an interesting movie to watch. Uh I just it didn't strike me as like super fun to do. You know, as uh Yeah, that that uh, was
0: my take. I just know it's one that's talked about a lot with her. I was just curious about your motivation, but I agree with you 100% that it's probably not a fun movie to do. Much like we're not going to uh I don't think we're going to be doing Antichrist anytime soon on here. <laughs> um,
1: it just reminded me uh th- the guys from uh, Beyond the Box it, they just did uh The Room. Uh or is it Room? I don't know, the not the not the one that inspired uh, the disaster artist, but the, the one with uh
3: Oh uh, Brie Larson. Marvel.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brie Larson, you know, which is a good movie, but honestly it's a really heavy movie to discuss and uh, they were they were struggling and they noted and they were struggling to just have a, a lively, fun episode discussing the movie. <laughs> so yeah, maybe some of those are 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 best left to I don't know, you know, our uh, our bonus episodes when we have a patron or something.
0: There you go. All right, so moving on to plugs, we will be appearing on the live stream for the Cure coming up at the end of this month, uh, <laughs> reviewing the movie Sliver, starring another Baldwin. So you know, <laughs> keep keeping the chain together. Uh, that- Can you
1: imagine Beetlejuice with uh with Billy Baldwin instead oh, of Alec Baldwin? <laughs>
0: <laughs> him just trying to push his nose back in
1: <laughs> I would just imagine him just he wouldn't be able to keep his hands to himself he, no. he'd just be like all over Gina Davis. Like Baldwin had the decency to you know restrain himself.
0: But that will be the last weekend of May. I believe we're going to be on there on May 30th and we do have a promo to roll so you guys can get all the details
3: and we will do that right now. We'll be aiming for our most ambitious goal to date as we try to raise $10,000 for the Cancer Research Institute.
0: Please visit www.livestreamforthecure.com for more information on this year's event and how you can be a part of it. Together, we can make a difference.
1: So live stream for the Cure, yes, uh, May 30th, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, that's that's our slot. Uh, just join us, we'll be, like Alex said, we'll be doing Sliver, we'll be giving out a couple of prizes, we'll give an autographed by us, uh, Blu-ray copy of the movie, and we'll also be giving out my whole notebook of contrarians notes and alex last episode i said that i thought it contained the entire contrarians run i was wrong uh i just looked and it starts with uh glow that's the first thing on uh on on the first page uh so when we did the glow bonus episode uh that's still mm-hmm. a fair chunk it's like there's glow juno this means war uh the golden years the glory days uh, Yes. So there's still, you know, a lot of stuff. If you're curious about what I write down while I'm watching the movies that we watch before we record for the show, uh some of that stuff that never makes it into the show, some of that stuff makes it and then gets cut. Uh, and some of it uh gets changed along the way. Uh but yeah, I, I think it's a funny for any contrarians fan and for any fan of uh just I don't know, behind the scenes stuff, it might be it might be a fun memento. Uh, so, what we'll do is what we did last year. Uh, anybody uh, that donates during our segment gets, you know, kind of like a raffle ticket, and then you know at the at the end of the of the segment, we'll just do an actual raffle where we name the winner. And uh, so that should be that should be fun.
0: All right, and as always, want to give a shout out to the Festive Years who provide us with some killer tunes for our podcast. Uh, as you might be able to tell, we have a new track that plays by the Festive Years titled Don't Look Now. It's off their album AOK. Be sure to check out thefestiveyears.com for any and all Festive Years needs.
1: Yeah, I was talking to Alex about this, and uh, I had to Chris, Chris Lloyd, the the frontman of the band, and uh, we're gonna what we're gonna do is we're gonna feature Doc Brown. Yes, he traveled back, I guess he traveled forward from nineteen eighty five. But he uh, he said he's cool with us, like featuring basically a different song of uh, of this album throughout the summer of Winona. So we'll start with Don't Look Now.
3: Excellent.
1: uh, And then we'll just do different ones uh, in the subsequent episodes. don't look now. it's you'll notice it when it starts it plays. It's that riff that we've been using uh, uh, as background for the clips, the clips from Tofer and Mitch and Ben. So yes, festive years just go to festiveyears.com. follow them on uh, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Spotify. find them everywhere.
0: All right, And as we've been doing for our past few episodes and we'll continue to do so, I want to give a shout out. Thanks, plug. What have you. To our behind-the-scenes member of the Contrarians family, Miss Zoe Perez, who provides uh, content, editing, ideas, goes through the motions of posting on our Instagram social media accounts. She's the the mind behind the madness, and we really do appreciate the work she puts in.
1: Yes, and finally, on our last perennial plug, Hans Ruth are the man behind our logo, fellow podcaster, also a, a novelist of renown, if, if you're into zombie movies, and... Uh, he has two podcasts, Nacion Combi, which is uh, about Peruvian current affairs. That's in Spanish, available in every podcatcher. Uh, his second show is Living in Peru, which is about immigrants to Peru when there's no coronavirus preventing it. Uh, that's in English, and that's on iVox. Uh, he has a website, which is uh, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. You can go in there for all your hands geezer needs, including... Uh, his new novel, zombie novel, called uh, "Requiem Port Ludin." Uh, go ahead and check that out. Talk to Hans. He, uh, you've heard him before on the show. He's a guy with very, very strong opinions about everything,
0: including the fly.
1: Including the fly. Which, by the way, did you, did you catch? Of course, you did. The the fly uh, reference in Beetlejuice. Uh, remind me. So he is a. Uh, Beetlejuice is a, you know, tiny Beetlejuice is in the model home and he, uh, he lures a fly so he can eat it. And then he, he catches a fly and pulls it in. And then the fly goes, Help me, help me, or help. Oh,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Haunting.
1: I never would have gotten that if we hadn't watched the original Fly. So thank you, Hans. God bless. What are your plugs?
0: Uh, not anything really new or groundbreaking. I did finish the third season of Ozark and, uh, It's awesome. And I (laughs) often describe that show on here. I know regularly I describe that show as um, junk food television. This uh, season, though, featured a new character. Uh, Laura Linney has a brother named Ben in this, and it's played by a gentleman by the name of Tom uh, Pelfrey. I do apologize for mispronouncing the name. But uh, his performance as Ben on this show is like, the first thing that's taken the show from a daytime soap opera with a massive budget to something of high class and notoriety. And Oh, wow. Yeah. His individual performance is like, I don't know, I guess golden globes Emmys is what the show could win. Uh, but that dude, it's pretty unbelievable how good he is. Uh, like as good of acting as I've seen in anything in recent memory. So if you haven't watched Ozark, fucking watch it. It's awesome. It's, (laughs) it's big and loud and dumb. Uh, but then when you get to the third season and, uh, Mr. Pelfrey shows up, it, it definitely ups the stakes. And then a show I completely forgot about until I saw the trailer for the second season. Man, these Netflix shows are great. They're just disposable. Like the it's not like, you know, the old days where we have to wait a week. You can just kind of binge these shows, enjoy it, and forget about it, especially right now in quarantine. Um Dead to Me, Dead to You. Yeah, uh, the uh, show- Christine
1: Applegate and uh yeah. Hawkeye's um, wife.
0: <laughs> I was gonna say Daphne, uh, but <laughs> Miss Linda Cardellini. Uh, the second season of that comes out this week. And I think I watched that show in like a weekend. So I might just do the same again for this. But uh, yeah, Ozark. And again, not to discredit anyone else on the show, like Jason Bateman in particular shines because he does a lot of like a lot of the episodes he directs also. And I mean, we've talked about what an untapped talent he is. And uh, but yeah, this dude in the third season just took it to a whole different stratosphere. So anyway, Julio, what about yourself? Um,
1: just two quick plugs. First off, I rewatched Snowpiercer because uh, my wife decided that she wanted to check it out. And I was like, sure. I hadn't seen it since it came out in theaters. And it's even better, I think, on rewatch. Have you seen Snowpiercer? Uh, I have not. It's on Netflix, uh, Captain America himself. Before, at least in my mind, this is before we were 100% taking Chris Evans seriously. He had already been Captain America mm-hmm. but I I just I remember the the key difference between me watching Snowpiercer Piercer when it came out a few years ago and me watching snow Piercer now was that I was not kind of rattled by seeing Chris Evans play some really really dark uh serious scenes and I think that the first time I watched it it threw me off the, you know things get pretty dramatic and dark towards the end and uh I was taking out of the movie a little bit. By the casting, I was just like, "That's Chris Evans trying too hard." And watching it this time, I was like, "No, that's perfect. He's great." It was the problem was me all along. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> it's it's a great movie. It looks great. It's it's a lot of fun. Uh, it's just it's really worth watching. If you're trying to build yourself up to to watch uh, Parasite uh, down the line, well, this one's in English, so you can start there and then decide that you actually like what this director does, and then move on to his recent Oscar winner. There you go. Uh, the other thing is a plug for my uh, appearance on the Countdown podcast. Uh, it was, it was. Uh, I don't remember if I told you about it, Alex, off mic. But I, I was talking to Paul, one of the hosts there, uh, about you know them doing a, a little clip for the summer of Winona, and he asked me if I wanted to be in the show on a bonus episode that his co-host Wayne wasn't going to be in because. Uh, so Paul has a list of his top 100 movies, which I'm guessing you don't have. I know I didn't have. Uh, Mm -mm. The the idea of ranking uh, my favorite movies from 1 to 100, it just seemed... It it was too daunting. Uh, But that was the thing that, you know, Paul has it and Wayne doesn't. And Wayne doesn't want to do a list of 100 favorite movies. So what Paul's doing is he's breaking it up in chunks of 10 movies. And uh, so he's going to be talking about chunks of 10 movies uh, with different podcasters. And I was the first one. So I did spots 91 to 100 uh so i had to make my list of top 100 movies and then go on the show and talk about numbers 91 to 100 and he talked about his 91 to 100 you know and then next episode somebody will do 81 to 90 and you know and so on and then when he gets to the top 10 that episode he'll do with wayne uh who knows how long how far down the line but anyway it was a blast (laughs) it was uh Paul and I have very different tastes in movies and uh but also you're talking about your top 100 so no matter who you're t- even if I was talking to you our you know our 91 to 100 would be so different i imagine there oh, would yeah. be no crossover and uh yeah predictably there was no crossover uh, on my list with Paul which is what made it so much fun uh, and now i have uh, a list of you know i had to put up to make this list I put it together in I don't know three four days, so a lot of it's just gut feeling. A lot of it are movies that I that I wish I, I would had time to rewatch, so I could feel better about their position on the list. But for something that I did in four days, it's it's all right. And uh, so if you want to do, if you want to know what my top. Uh, 91 to 100 movies are uh, just listen to that bonus episode of the countdown uh, it's like I said a lot of fun and it, you know it, it, odds are that if you listen to us you're listen to the countdown uh, but if you don't now is a good time, but it's a good crossover
0: all right well, we appreciate you guys listening as always. Uh, we carry on. We march on in the summer of Winona. Our next stop will be Alien Resurrection. Our next stop will be, once again, hopping forward in time to 1997. Or hopping around in time, I should say. Uh, short hair Winona. There we go. But for now, that is going to do it for us here on The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time.
3: out, short scared. Size. You're mine I got you locked in a room.